Dear Heavenly Father, in a few weeks, our calendar recognizes Easter. We've chosen as a Christian people to celebrate your resurrection, to commemorate it once a year around this time. Good Friday comes at the end of this month. But Father, truly it can be said for every blood-bought saint in this room that every waking moment since we have been redeemed by your blood is indeed Easter season for us. Lord, I pray that you would stir and quicken our souls to such high degree this morning that we cannot help but celebrate your resurrection when we gather with even one or two or whether we gather with a handful here this morning. I pray that every waking moment when you bless us and grace us with another sunrise, when we wake up, a sunrise that we don't deserve, but your blood bought to purchase, your blood paid that price for another breath in our lungs, I pray that from our hearts and souls would spring a cry of praise and glory to your throne in thankfulness for Easter. And now as we read the truths of what you died to accomplish and what you had planned and ordained, Heavenly Father, for all of time, even as we read from the book of Psalms, in a few moments, truths recorded about that glorious event thousands of years before it took place in time, we're reminded that it was eternally there in the heart of our Heavenly Father, established according to your perfect will and purposes. And in light of these truths, we can only say, to God be the glory. Great things you have done. You loved us, your people, this world so greatly that you made propitiation in the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. Help us to visit that truth, not just this season, but this morning. And as many days, as many moments, as many breaths in our lungs that you graciously give to greater and more magnificent degree, all the while knowing that the truth and beauty therein contained is absolutely inexhaustible. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious privilege to gather to celebrate our Lord Jesus again this morning. I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 22. Our Psalm a month Sunday. As the Lord's will would have it. Not my plan but His. We come across this Psalm. As we do approach the Easter season. At the end of this month we have a combined Good Friday service. On the 29th in Brainerd. I couldn't help but think about that service. And wonder if the Lord hadn't planned a message from this Psalm in addition to this morning, and we'll see if that is indeed the case. But the reason why I'm led to think that is the amazing prophetic, the foresight, the foreshadowing, and the clear emphatic words of Jesus Christ Himself that He spoke on the cross that are recorded for us in Psalm chapter 22 that jump off the pages with gospel clarity and revelation from the perspective of our benefit, now having the gospel to read as well, in such a way that I think we could only underestimate the glory, the power, and the importance of both the poetry that Psalm 22 uses to describe the glory of what God had in store redemptively in Jesus Christ, but also the prophecy that is written in to these pages. It is absolutely stunning. If it couldn't be emphatically demonstrated through archaeological record and historically documented or otherwise, certainly no unbelieving heart would ever believe that these words were written before the event took place. But they were. How could they be? Because that event had taken place in the mind and heart of Father God before creation began as Revelation records. So you see these moments of prophetic clarity coming through in the text, written years and years and years, decades, centuries, prior to the coming of our Lord Jesus. These moments of clarity and revelation that speak to things that only the heart of God Himself could have known 
and gives us such incredible faith that it was indeed His Holy Spirit that manifestly gave every word to His servants to write down and record for us to appreciate now His power today. With that introduction, Psalm 22, we'll read it from start to finish, 31 verses. If you'll follow with me after the title, the title is the following, To the Choir Master, According to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is, like dry, is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord... Do not be far off. O you my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before Him shall bow down, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. What, an, what a powerful declaration. What an amazing prophetic picture. What a clear declaration of anguish and glory. The title of this morning's message is Darkness and Glory. It could be easily anguish and triumph or catastrophe and confidence, rejection and reunion, victim, enemy. There's a sharp contrast in circumstance in this psalm, more dramatic than any other passage of Scripture that I know of. 
How in just a few short verses can you go from this pitiful cry beyond ghastly belief of a wretched person whose skin is so stretched across his form that he is withered to the point you can count his bones. He can't speak but a word or two because his mouth sticks to the roof of his jaw and he cries out, My God, my God, three times, why have you forsaken me? My God, I cry all the day. And then close with such a note of triumph that this man was not just a suffering servant, a sacrifice who died a ghastly death of cruel shame and torture on a cross, but this was a king to whom the nations belong. And the prosperous of the earth, alongside those who are grossly impoverished, will be on level playing field worshiping Him and acknowledging His glory to the ends of the earth for all of time. How can these two thoughts and these two images exist in the same poem and more than that exist in the same man? David's acquaintance with suffering no doubt provided something of the occasion for writing this song, psalm. David was a man who was acquainted with sorrows and grief, but there is no way that David was acquainted with the sorrows even close or even a fraction of that which our Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, was acquainted with. You see, David wrote, Partially, I believe, moved by his own experience, but ultimately and substantially moved by the Holy Spirit of God. David never, never ever, had he lived a million years, had he been alive today, David would never experience seeing calamity after calamity, one after the other, the most tragic of circumstances, could never have experienced the weight of punishment his own sin deserved unless he had gone to hell itself. But Jesus Christ, on the other hand, did. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the one whom David spoke of and prefigured, experienced pain and suffering infinitely beyond anything David or anyone else has ever experienced. He experienced the pain and the suffering, the wrath that David's sin deserved. We know David's gross, heinous, Rebellion against God. He was a decrepit, fallen sinner like you and I. His dirty laundry is recorded in Scripture for us to see and behold as, yes, horribly sinful. An adulterer, a liar, a thief, a murderer, one who is broken, one and all, the Ten Commandments. And there we find ourselves in the picture of David as well knowing that we are totally depraved and lost in our sin, and if we've broken one of His commands, we've broken them all. And if we've transgressed in the heart, it's the same as in the action. And here we see our Heavenly Father ordaining a plan where a king would come, like David, but so unlike David, in the scope of what he would represent and accomplish, that he would take all of the punishment David's sin deserves, and so much more, all of the punishment that your sin, my sin, and every saint for all of time deserved. And here is why we have the most powerful picture of anguish and victory hand in hand. David's acquaintance with suffering provided something of the occasion for revealing and proclaiming a foreshadow of the suffering of Christ. But the uniqueness of this psalm, I believe, cannot be overstated. Just leaving the stunning prophetic elements to the side for the moment won't even be able to touch them to any length or degree in this message as we'll explore mo- mace, mo- I'm sorry, mainly, mostly the prophetic elements of Psalm 22. We'll leave some of those, uh, uh, the poetic moments or elements of Psalm 22 for this week. We'll leave some of those prophetic elements for another message for a future sermon. But even leaving those prophetic elements aside for just a moment, considering this psalm and its prophetic declaration of anguish and victory, we can see right away that no man, 
not even collective mankind and all the suffering he's ever endured, David or anyone has ever come close to suffering anything that his sin deserves, really, but Christ himself did. This psalm eclipses David's own worst possible cumulative experiences and trials from verse 1. In other words, David was never so far gone as to legitimately say from the depths of his God-forsaken soul, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was still breath in his lungs. The sun was still rising and setting until such day as God called, until the day that God called him home. As soon as David says, Why have you forsaken me? He's eclipsed his own experience by infinite degree, and he's writing, as we've said before, as the lineage of Christ. He's writing out of time. He's speaking of one to come. He's speaking of cumulative experiences and trials and weight that his sin bore on the shoulders of one man alone in such a way that he could cry out with that stunning and shocking feeling with bear, which bears the ethos of ultimate anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we consider the darkness and glory of the suffering here described, the language is utterly stunning and it's utterly foreign to us outside of a sovereign and redemptive atonement, resurrection, and ascension. That is to say, if you don't know who Jesus Christ is, you have not received personally a value of what his saving work was on the cross, Psalm 22 will fall so far short of its meaning for you, it simply will not make sense. The language is utterly foreign. foreign. The descriptions and the picture, the imagery, the poetic depth is utterly shocking and beyond the realm of understanding or ability to ascertain within a mere human's experience. This is a psalm that can only be understood as far as we understood the, understand the atoning work of Christ. This week, by way of introduction to this psalm, I just want to consider four points of poetic emphasis in Psalm 22. Let's explore something of what the poetry affords this poet par excellence, namely David, as he reaches within the realm of greater language and literary ability, tapping a genre that gives him the ability and tools and leverage to say things that mere words and prose cannot simply express. Let's explore four poetic points of emphasis in Psalm 22. First of all, note the contrast between Christ's enemies ultimately, the enemies that David felt to some degree, and the victim here. From the title, we have this interesting language right away that can easily conjure up images for us if we explore it and think about it, meditate on it at some depth, to the choir master. According to the Doe of the Dawn, a psalm of David. What do you think of by way of image and connotation when you hear that phrase, Doe of the Dawn? A deer, a, a lamb as it were, or a, a, a yearling, a, a, a tender animal that we think of in peaceful and serene terms in the morning. A doe never thinks to hurt or bother anyone in the concept of what's poetic imagery in our mind. A helpless deer that is just out there in the purity of nature, as it were, if we imagine a scene from Eden, a beautiful, graceful gazelle or doe, a deer that is there and appreciating and part of the aesthetics of God's beauty and the cathedral of His glory revealed in creation is harming no one, but instead gives pleasure to all who pause to notice this graceful, beautiful creature of God's design that simply appreciates the habitat and this beautiful sunrise and morning that God has given this deer, this doe, to appreciate. This is the image of vulnerability and innocence. 
of the purity of creation and the glory and the beauty of our God. But then as we see the enemies of this dough, as it were, revealed in the Scripture, we find this very stark contrast and bold language and shocking terms in verse 12, for instance. Imagine this doe standing there and many bulls encompass this animal. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. I'm told that this region, Bashan, lent itself to prime conditions so that animals that were privileged to range on its pastures would grow to incredible size and strength. So a bull of Bashan was an iconic imagery of strength. The strongest, most vigorous and robust animals would come from this region. But these animals are not just strong, but their additional imagery is incorporated to describe something else of their character. And verse 13, they open wide their mouths at me like ravening and a roar, like a ravening and a roaring lion. So we have the ultimate picture of strength in nature, and we have the ultimate picture of unhinged with reason gone and a maddening hunger driving a lion, a predator of prey, to an angry and ravenous pursuit of its helpless and vulnerable prey. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. What deer stands a chance? What helpless little fawn can hope to see tomorrow when it's surrounded by the bulls of Bashan whose mouths open with a ravenous, maddening hunger, a rabid desire to devour in anger and insatiable appetite and desire as their numbers far outnumber the helpless, innocent doe and their drive and their passion and their sin and destructive behavior is absolutely overwhelming. If that weren't enough, in verse 16, additional imagery is incorporated. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. And again, we see this fawn isolated from the herd. All of us are familiar with the National Geographic type video or Discovery Channel where these relentless animals of prey get the helpless little fawn that can't defend themselves and work their way between the mother and the herd and the strength of numbers until they isolate and separate the weakest and vulnerable element. And then these jackals will surround that animal. And if it's a cute and helpless fawn, we, can't, we cannot but feel something of an emotional affinity with that animal and grimace at least slightly as we see this unhinged, ravenous appetite totally devour a helpless little lamb or fawn or yearling. And this is the picture here. Dogs in the Near East at this time were nothing like the domesticated man's best friend that we think of today. Instead, they were mangy, lawless bands of canine gangs that would come in and destroy and devour in their numbers. Jackals, hyenas, rabid, diseased, relentless. These dogs would encircle and encompass its helpless prey. And it didn't matter if you could defend yourself against one, maybe even five men, if you were a strong individual. If a pack of dogs were to surround you with enough numbers, you didn't stand a chance, let alone if you were a helpless little fawn. They encompass me. They encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. So the title of this psalm and then the imagery that we see and the appeal that is made on behalf of the victim gives us this ghastly scene of horrific, sinful, raging power absolutely destroying the victim of its sinful and rabid appetite. A tender youth and beautiful serenity are swallowed up This grace of new life, this birth of the morning is interrupted by a scene of war and carnage. 
joy and beauty, comfort, nurturing, innocence and helplessness and infancy are overridden in a horrific moment of tyrannical greed and oppression, destruction and death. Dependency, affection, family, unconditional love, undying faithfulness are all suddenly the victims of the lawless and the unhinged and the destructive divorces spoken of like a lion in other places is a picture of the devil in as much as he seeks to steal and to kill and destroy and to rout the sheep and like a wolf that comes in to feed his own appetite and nothing else. The enduring adoration in the eyes of a mother cradling her own son is a picture of beauty and iconic imagery of innocence and joy and peace that we can culturally relate to. We see this image in verses 9 and 10, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you You made me trust you at my mother's breast. A picture of total dependency on this nurturing relationship. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And we go from this image of a helpful infant to the image of an infant surrounded by bulls and lions, and jackals, and rabid dogs, and evildoers, and swordsmen, war, and carnage. The poetic emphasis is stark. It's drastic. It's shocking. There's the title and the appeal that give us this picture of contrast between the innocence of Christ and the horrific nature of our sin. It wasn't just self-indulgence. It was active, rabid rebellion against a holy God. It wasn't just, I'm going to do my own thing. But it was railing against the innocence of the universe, the perfection of God's holiness. It was a thumb in the eye, spit on the face, a crown of thorns on the head, a mocking robe on the, for- on the form, a jeering cry from the crowd. It was all these things and more. It was a pack of ravenous jackals isolating an innocent baby from her mother and having its way with that picture of helpless vulnerability, wide opening Raving, ravening, roaring mouths, hungry and angry, encompassing dogs, encircling animals, predators, evildoers, swordsmen, taking every unholy advantage of the situation for their sins unchecked and unmitigated desires. This is the beastly, predatorial nature of our sin, no matter who you are and where you are. This is what we have done in our rebellion against a holy God. To any degree on the external that we evidence what we think is a little bit of sin, this is the picture from God's perspective of the heart condition of any who would stray from any degree with the essence of God's holiness that we read of in verse 3. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. That is the only rightful response that any created creature ought to have in relationship to his or her God. If you do not enthrone him on your praises, if you do not exist in your desires, your will, and your, infect, and your affections to enthrone Him, to give Him glory, to serve His purposes, to make Him great, to follow in faithful obedience to His will and command, the only other thing you are is a bull, is a raging bull, a dog, a venomous snake, an animal that preys on the weak and the vulnerable, one who is surround innocence and for its own unholy, rapacious desire, destroy it by hook or by crook. Now, if this poetic emphasis, enemy versus victim, in the title and the imagery that we see here, was not enough to shock us awake to the reality of sin and the weight of what happened at the cross that was prophesied here and David spoke to and was revealed to him to some degree in this psalm, then we move to a second point of poetic emphasis. 
And I'll just call this adding insult to injury. The mocking voices that we hear coming through are shocking in and of themselves. It's not just what they did, the hammer that was raised that pounded the nails into hands and feet, but it was the voices that were raised that railed as verbal whips and lashes against the form of our perfect and sinless Savior. And these words we see in verse 5, to you they cried, and were, I'm sorry, verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They make mouths at me. Similar to making faces. Gestures of contempt. I'm told culturally that these were reserved for the debase and the lowest of the low. Those who were, had no ethical sense about them. It was gross and ghastly gestures. The ultimate of irreverence that the culture could possibly think of directed at the object that least deserved it. You can think of images in your mind that would be culturally equivalent. Things that propriety would keep me from saying from the pulpit. But those gross gestures of the height of irreference in word or in deed that you could possibly muster in your mind in today's cultural equivalent language, those were the things that were employed against our Savior. So that not just their hand, but their mouth Not just their action, but their heart. Not just their word, but their deed became a weapon in their malicious heart and hand against the purity of God's divine and holy King. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They make faces at me. They mock and they scorn and they scourge. They whip and they imitate and they ridicule. They wag their heads. Verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. These are words that are so devastating as to emotionally ambush the victim that they turn the only remaining source of confidence into a malicious, malevolent weapon in the hand of the terrorist, as it were, to wield against the helpless victim. That is... People said of the only source of Christ's confidence and authority, the will and purposes of the Father, oh, if He's so great and such a great crutch for you, why didn't you call on Him to release you from this cross? And you see, you are denied nearly every source of comfort if you listen at all to the voice of the accuser. He is not content to punish you in a minimal or a here and there degree. But he is so thorough in his condemnation that he takes advantage of every weapon, physical, psychological, everything he can muster to point at you. And the guns of the spirit and the soul and the flesh and the world and the devil are all trained on the Son of Man, the Son of God. As we see earlier in the chapter, these familiar sources of comfort that everyone holds on to, hang in there, I promise it'll be okay, or tomorrow's a new day, or why don't you just sleep on it? Even comfort in time has left the victim of this chapter. In verse 2 he says, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Tomorrow's a new day. Sleep on it. Maybe something will occur to you. Maybe with the dawning sunrise, you'll have answer. Maybe the light of the morning will shed light on your situation. But morning after morning, which with the dawning of the sun, the cry is unceasing. And it's as new as the sun rays that eclipse the horizon, this cry and this anguish. So even the normal passing of time that is thought to be the great healer, if nothing else works, if all else fails, is denied the victim of the great torture that is endured in this chapter. And so it is with the night, and by night I find no rest. Nightfall does not provide a welcome reprieve from the anguish. There is no peace in sleep. There is no relief from stress, whether by day or by night the cry is unceasing. 
Day provides no answers. Night provides no rest. No consolation in the natural course of things. No consolation in time. At the mercy of beastly forces, I am myself to place the first person or to read from the first person here am stripped of even my human dignity. In verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. All the forces that are, that are rallied against Jesus Christ and the weight of God's wrath taking this form against Him in every area, emotionally and on His physical form, is such that the consequences for His soul is to make Him feel not a man, but a worm. A worm. Something lower than even a bull, a dog, or a lion. In his mind, the mental assailants, the, the, the mental uh, uh, anguish that these forces are putting him through is such an anguishing degree of torture that it leaves him feeling lesser than those forces that are fighting against him. Not a man, but a worm. The lowest of the low. Reduced or removed of all power. Stripped of all dignity, there to be trodden underfoot by the bull, by the dog, by the angry, malicious man, by the evildoer, by the sword bearer, by the ravening and roaring lion. At the mercy of beastly forces, stripped of human dignity, less than them, less than human, I am a worm. If accusers find no immediate reason to despise him, they scorn him until they despise him. If they don't see right away why we should hate the man, they begin to join the chorus of public and popular opinion until they do begin to hate the man after gossiping about him. If they don't have anything within their soul to terminate on in scorn or mockery, or I'm sorry, scorn, or to despise, then simply looking at him is enough to make them mock this man reduced of dignity being made the object of shame, being made the butt of the jokes. Their mouths wag at him. They wag their heads. I don't know what he must have done. That must have been a wicked man. To whatever degree, the attitudes that were reflected in those that simply walked by, like the pious priest or Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan to those who actively drove the nails in his hand. It didn't matter if it was a passive indifference or an active malicious comment. There hanging before them, before them in his marred visage was the Holy One of Israel deserving only to be enthroned on their praises. So whether it was a wagging head or a mocking voice or the scoffing and the scorning and the despising of the people, all were equally guilty of falling short of the glory of God. They scorn Him until they despise Him. And one thing leads to another. Abuse gives rise to abuse. They need no more motive than just to look at Him, to turn their venom and the energy of their base, horrible, depraved desires against the Son of Man, the Son of God. All who see me mock me. They make fun at me. They make lewd gestures in my direction. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. His source of hope, help, and confidence becomes the theme of their mockery. Merciless attackers exploiting every vulnerability. The force of opposition against this individual, this victim, this innocent doe of the dawn, as it were, this innocent child that is pictured in the innocence of an infant who is born to a nursing mother is now the object of horrific abuse. The worst of what we can think of by way of crimes today that we say, I wish they'd lock that person up forever or reinstitute the death penalty all men in their sin as categorized and pictured in this chapter are guilty of against Jesus Christ. The force of opposition against Him is such that He is reduced to a pitiful, ghastly character. Verse 15, His strength 
as he has described himself as a worm, is dried up like a potsherd. The sun has destroyed this vessel that once at least was useful for holding water. At least a cistern that would serve some passive useful purpose to save for a period of time some life-giving sustenance to a, tra- passing, a traveler passing by. Even that, even that use is now gone as far as his physical body is concerned. Everything poured in is poured out like water. His body cannot contain anything anymore by way of strength. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. He is utterly devoid of any might except strength to suffer. How do we describe the situation such that these poetic words and devices give us the ability to appreciate in deeper form? In verse 14, I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. How do we describe it except in the words of Spurgeon something similar to this confession of truth, the form of Jesus Christ as he was crucified on the cross enduring the shame and the wrath we deserved as utterly devoid of any might except strength to suffer. God the Father kept him alive just enough to suffer more, to suffer the psychological weight, the physical weight, of what you and I would be crushed under in a moment. I don't think we'd have the strength to psychologically bear up under these forces that assailed our Messiah. I don't think we have the strength to physically endure. There was supernatural energy undergirding our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ at this time, but it was strength to bear the weight of God's wrath. It was strength to suffer, strength to be broken more completely, strength to be whipped one more time, strength to be torn apart, to lose another pint of blood, to endure another bruise or stripe or brokenness of the flesh. Strength to bleed some more. Strength to cry out with the last words that he could possibly muster after vinegar has loosened the tongue that had stuck to his jaw. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I am told in Hebrew, and it's in these moments I wish I were a Hebrew scholar, so I could understand even more of the depth of what this psalm contains. If I knew something more of the language in which it was written, I'm sure it would open up a new wealth of treasure for us to appreciate. But I'm told from those who are privy to those things that this in itself is recorded in such a way as to connote a roar, as to indicate uh, absolute utterance of complete, desperate, guttural, pitiful, ghastly cry from the depths of the soul, such that it is the last dying gasp of desperation that a man in supernatural strength granted can possibly utter. And we see in the New Testament account that it wasn't long after Jesus had quoted these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he quoted another phrase from the psalm, Psalm 31, 5, In Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it was finished. It was completed. He had endured the wrath that the collective sin of the elect deserved on his marred visage and broken body and form. When it says in Isaiah that this suffering servant suffered in such a way that it pleased the Lord to crush him. That meant it satisfied the terms of a holy God's justice. The wickedness, the infinite wickedness that our sin represented was propitiated and atoned for on that suffering that Jesus Christ was given supernatural ability to endure on His broken and torn and bruised and bleeding form. The force of opposition against Him was such that it reduced his body to a pitiful and ghastly form. He was like a broken potsherd dried in the sun, useful for nothing, containing nothing, emptied of all its strength. He was like one who had a skeleton with skin so 
taut and so stretched over its forms that it was nearly translucent and you could count the bones as if you were to blow up a balloon more and more and more until you reached that point just before it would explode. That is the kind of tension that was on the skin of the Lord of glory as he hung there by two nails in his hands and by a spike that pierced his feet, cutting through nerves and sending screaming and anguishing pain through his entire form. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. As if to say, this man's robe is worth more than his person. Here we have a picture of sinners like you and me casting lots underneath the cross, more excited about the value of his robe than the value of the life. The eternal Son of God that was crucified above them. If this isn't a picture of despising the holy, then there hasn't been one in history. His robe is more valuable to the sinner than the fact that he was being slain for the very sin that there they are taking one opportunity, this gross, unjust execution and all its ghastly gore has provided them. Hey, let's gamble a little bit. Who gets the robe? I crucified him. No, I crucified him. I pounded the nail in his right hand. I pounded it in his left. I should get the robe. No, you should get the robe. Let's cast lots for it. And there they are, in a heart and attitude like that, dividing his garments, settling their dispute over the value of his robe by playing a cheap game, a cheap game, casting dice, as it were, for the robe that was on Jesus. I am so thankful that the spiritual robe that Jesus wore, as the Bible pictures those perfectly white garments, are so graciously available for a sinner like you or me who has valued anything, any material thing, more than the death of Jesus Christ that is able to wash that sin away. They didn't know what was going on. Jesus Christ Himself confessed this when He said, Father, please forgive them. They know not what they do. They did not know that their sin in the providential sovereign hand of God was a tool in His almighty hand to actually wash their sin of despising the holy and entertaining the trivial away. But that was the truth. And that was what this picture prophesies and this poem explores in such great depth and detail. Two more points quickly. Catastrophe and confidence. Back to back, these phrases of this poem are unbelievable to me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it's as if the answer to why is answered easily. Easily, even though he's endured the suffering that we've just described. Infinitely, that we've just scratched the surface in finite detail. These few moments that afford us with our limited language. Verse 3, that you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. Why have you forsaken me? Because a holy God demands a just payment for sin. Why has the heavenly Father turned His face from me? And why am I lost right now from the good graces for a time enduring the wrath in this way? Because the heavenly Father, the God had ought to be This holy one enthroned on the praises of Israel. And here we see this providential confession and confidence. So catastrophe and confidence are right there exuded and explained. Back to back, there's a covenantal transaction that is taking place here. There's a satisfaction for the sanctions of the covenant that God is performing to keep his promise to preserve for himself a remnant that is happening in the suffering and death of his son. And verse 4, we read of this covenantal picture, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted in you delivered them. 
we read in the book of Hebrews, that their faith, that what would happen, that was prophetically pictured here, would happen in the future. Their faith in that event was the very thing that caused them to be justified in the eyes of God that a Savior would suffer and die on their behalf. They trusted and you delivered them. You delivered the captive Israelites from Egypt. You delivered Abraham from the kings who would destroy him. You delivered Joseph from the jealousy of his brothers. You delivered God's people through Joseph's obedience. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. To you they trusted and were not put to shame. Catastrophe and confidence are side by side. Though the most horrific event that was the epitome of all sin represented in this heinous act that history records in such enduring infamy and the slaying of God's only begotten Son on the same hand. There is this confession that it is a fulfillment of the covenant terms that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Catastrophe and confidence are spoken of side by side. And you see how this psalm would never make sense outside of the person, the work, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. It would be seen as the psychobabble, the incoherent utterance of a madman. It would not be seen as a coherent body of thought. How can someone be so positive on the one hand, declaring glory and holy purpose on one, and then so distraught on the other hand, declaring themselves forsaken from the only source of hope in all the universe over. Only, I say again, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he's pictured as lowly, as a worm and not a man in verses 6 through 8. But then he's pictured in innocence and renewed form Yet in you, yet you are he who took me from the womb, who made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. In other words, the supernatural hand that delivered me from the womb of a virgin is the supernatural hand that inflicted in a sovereign purpose what I'm going through now for a purpose. That's beyond what the pain and anguish of the moment could possibly conceive. Amazing. There is no way you could have these two thoughts running concurrent at this event. Such holy redemptive purpose and such ghastly criminal behavior if there wasn't something bigger than anything that we could experience outside of the suffering death and resurrection of Jesus Christ going on here. And this is the key to understanding how Psalm 22 is coherent as we see catastrophe and confidence emphasized back to back. And then again, verses 11 through 17, here's where the beastly predators encircle and enclose. They're getting constricting him and the claustrophobia of danger is all that he can feel as these forces get closer and closer stalking them. He sees the destruction and he sees the murderous intent in their eyes, in his eyes, have only dread and fear as he looks upon his sure and imminent death. Yet in verse 19, right after this description, he says, But you, O Lord, do not be afar off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. But three days, and he would rise again. Deliver my soul from the sword. Last week we preached a message during Easter called the seal, the sword, and the stone. And I just love the fact when Jesus was resurrected that, yeah, his new body could have passed right through that stone. But instead to symbolize that no force of nature could keep him in the grave, it was rolled away. We're told the stone was sealed. And I assume it had the mark of the imperial forces and authority of Rome that wax seal that if any man broke it, man, was he in trouble. Well, what if that man was Jesus Christ himself? That means the whole world is in trouble unless they repent. He broke the seal of Rome. The stone was rolled away. And the swords that were on the sides of the soldiers that were supposed to guard their, the tomb proved a clattering, worthless tool as they fell back prostrate on the ground. Because the glory of the angels was so overwhelming that they couldn't stand in the presence. 
well-trained elite forces, special forces trained to guard this tomb, lest any zealot force come and steal the body. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the oxen. How is this possible without resurrection? A resurrection that would shatter a, a sword, a seal, and a stone. And then we get the glorious picture in verses 22 through 31 of utter and complete victory. You see, when Jesus declared victory over death itself and Satan and all his forces that he could muster, what was there left to conquer? Nothing. He had declared ultimate victory. And what is there left to do but to praise him for all eternity? And verse 22, this is why back to back with catastrophe, we get this confidence, declar- confident declaration of triumph in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. He has just said, depart from me. Do not look on me. I am the epitome of shame. I am but a worm, not fit for the eyes of any respectable soul. And now in the same passage, he says, gather a congregation. Call everyone to witness. Have a church meeting. Let everyone gather. Call the multitudes to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let them behold the Lamb that was slain. Let them behold the risen Messiah. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, all of you who appreciate the lineage of covenant, glorify Him, stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, both physical and spiritual, we see this prophesied and fulfilled as the middle wall of separation comes down. And the Apostle Paul tells us that he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Then is the fulfillment of verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember this congregation gathers in the nations a representative people from every tribe and nation and tongue. Remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Awesome. Awesome. This unifying force, namely, bowing before the Lordship of Jesus Christ, is enough to unite the furthest disparity between cultures, populations, nations, people, history, and even sin from holiness. The prosperous of the earth eat and worship. They bow before Him. They shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. From the most pitiful picture of almost death, of the deathbed of somebody who's kept alive by a breathing machine on a hospital bed at this moment, to a person who's just won the lottery in the prime of their health, if they simply bow before the same Lord and Savior, the unifying force can make them have the most powerful sense of congregation and communion, not just with each other, but because of their communion with Jesus Christ, a unity that the world cannot destroy and cannot separate and cannot dismember and will culminate and consummate in heaven itself when that congregation will praise the Lord with voices that cannot be silenced, that will rival the highest waterfall for all of eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb that was slain. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. This is a a secret that must be told, must be revealed, such that God has willed it that generation upon generation be privy to this knowledge. He is not content that just the generation of the apostles come into the kingdom, but I don't know how many, but I'm sure thankful that He has endured this long with history. But posterity will preach to posterity and the coming generation and they shall come and proclaim His righteousness and to a people yet unborn, yet unborn that He has done it, that it is finished. Talk about confidence. Talk about power revealed. Talk about a twist in the plot. Talk about everything that looked like it was ultimate evil being used in the hand of a sovereign God for ultimate good, 
Romans 8.28 comes alive with eternal power. There is nothing that can thwart the will of our Heavenly Father. And there is nothing that can conquer our King of Kings. Kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Finally, there's rejection and reunion. Again, this juxtaposition, this poetic emphasis on the contrast would be incoherent outside of the Lord Jesus Christ being the epitome and the picture and the fulfillment and the prophecy revealed of this psalm. In the beginning, we see a picture of abandonment and lostness that is beyond our comprehension. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Even a wretched soul, somebody who is a well-trained sinner, might, might be moved by the most pitiful groan of the most innocent individual that just needs a little bit of a helping hand. But even that was denied our Savior. The picture of abandonment and rejection is unbelievable and unparalleled in the human experience outside of what Jesus himself endured. And he expresses this from the depths of his abused soul on the cross in these moments of his passion. In verse 11, be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. And the experiences that he was going through left him feeling absolutely rejected and abandoned from his heavenly father. Be not far from me. He cries again in verse 19. Do not be afar off, O you my help. Come quickly to my aid. And we know that the emotions that Christ was wrestling with felt as if he were an eternal chasm removed from the only power to intervene and to save him at that moment. Now, how is it that that picture of lostness, of separation, of rejection and abandonment, such that he says in verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. It's, it's as if you could put that following, there are many bowls who encompass me. There are mouths and, uh, uh, from roaring lions that are, in, that are enclosing around me, but I am a worm powerless to protect myself against them. Talk about a picture of rejection and abandonment and being utterly left to the lowest common denominator of all worldly and spiritual malevolent forces I can count all my bones, the dogs encircle me. This picture of helplessness and abandonment is eclipsed only by the glorious picture of redemption and reunion toward the end of the psalm. Look at all these pictures. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Where did those come from? Suddenly this worm who had nary a friend in the universe or even a helping hand to pull him out that wasn't even related to him, has brothers. People who share an affinity with his experience, who have a familial bond, who share the same heavenly father. Where does this idea come from? Secondly, in the midst of the congregation, same verse, I will praise you. Where does this group of people who have a fellowship and a God in common and a reason to congregate come from. Those who fear the Lord praise Him, all you offspring of Jacob. Suddenly there's a lineage, there's a fear, there's a reverence, there's a worship, there's a gathering, there's a family, there's brotherhood. Where did this come from? Those who fear Him. Even the afflicted are welcomed in, in verse 26, they shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him, where were those who sought him when he was crucified? All the ends of the earth remember. Where were the nations at the moment of his death? For the kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Where were the prosperous? Where were the poor? Where were the generations who would praise his name? Well, they were there. They were just there in seed form. They were there in the heart of God. They were there among those whom the Father had given Jesus Christ. But they would come in due time when the Holy Spirit took this message and preached it to the very men and women who were guilty of these horrible crimes and they cried out in anguish, men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? And in the book of Acts, that was the message. 
Peter and John and those apostles who had realized their own sin preached to those who had crucified Christ himself. You hopeless, rejected, reprobate, lost criminals. There is no hope for you outside of the blood of the very man you killed. And at that message, all of these began to come in. And suddenly, rejection gave way to glorious reunion. And the reasons why Christ was rejected ended up being the payment, the blood sacrifice, the purchasing power that we celebrate on Communion Sunday that provided the bonding agent, that provided the sin-washing power to unite a congregation, a people, a family, a united people group, a kingdom, a power beyond what this world could ever imagine as a commonality and a unity between them, a generational truth, a people who would come into the flock and the harvest as yet unborn, a healing force, a balm in Gilead that would save and heal the afflicted, that would provide wisdom to the foolish, sight to the blind, resurrection life to those dead in sin, that would that would give heavenly fathers to the fatherless and the widow. That would give husbands to those abandoned. That would give hope to the hopeless. That would exchange the fear of death and destruction and hell with the fear and reverence and acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would give meaning to the prophecies of old. That would declare the labors of the saints who had gone before efficient, Powerful, effective, meaningful, prophetic. All of these things came together. We see them coming together in Psalm 22. And we see them in ultimate revelation coming together at the cross. Darkness and glory eclipsed in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for that which we could never imagine, never engineer, never purchase, never dream up, never accomplish, never work for. Nothing, no power within the heart and soul of man could ever conceive or accomplish what our Heavenly Father has purposed, what your Holy Son has purchased, and what the Holy Spirit has applied to our heart. We confess that and we join the chorus that this psalm prophesied would be upon the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the offspring of Jacob, the offspring of Israel, the congregation of the beloved, the afflicted now healed, the dead now resurrected, and the families of the nations brought together around our Heavenly Father, our Lord and Savior, worshiping and calling ourselves brothers and adopted sons of the Almighty Heavenly Father. We worship and join that chorus in faith saying, you have done it, it is finished, it has been done, it is accomplished, and it was accomplished upon your shed blood our Lord Jesus. It was accomplished through your broken body and no power was able to keep you in the grave because ultimately it was the will of your heavenly Father that crushed you for the purpose of crushing our own sin. Oh, heavenly Father, we praise you. Oh, Son, Jesus Christ, we bow before your Lordship. We submit to your rule. Holy Spirit, we say, you are our friend, our advocate, our helper, and we trust you to lead us into truth. And I pray that our voices and our actions, our obedience and our faith, our growing understanding would reflect the truths that your word so gloriously, gloriously reveals when you apply it to our heart. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.